In your Bibles to Acts chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 10 today. But in John 6, if you guys remember uh, the familiar story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, that was only men. But of course, that in, even more so as it included the women and children, some say up to 15,000, 20,000 people. He was someone who was flexing his arm, so to speak. God flexing his arm to say that out of nothing, the cre- like showing that as a created God, a creator, he creates things out of nothing. And showing that these people had a great need even among them to eat. That God said, hey, just give me what you have and I'll multiply it so that 5,000, let's say 20,000 ate that day. Of course, later on, what happened was if you continue into that story, we always love the first part of that story. And then it just gets a little wacky as Jesus says that, hey, if you, with with that symbolized, with that showed, that miracle, what it showed is not that uh, you're to come to me uh, and that just get free meals, right? But rather what God was showing us through that text was that though Jesus had the power to feed us from nothing every day, Jesus was showing us something more profound. He says that I'm the bread of life and those who eat of me and drink of my blood, right? My, uh, of, uh, symbolizing communion, of course, not physically eating Jesus. <laughs> but they thought that. The people who were following said, hey, I like the free meal, but now it's getting a little too weird. As he began to say at the middle of John 6, that if you want to follow me, if you want to know me, you have to take all of me in. If you want eternal life, you got you to gotta take me in. You got to give your whole life to me. That was hard to hear. And of course, when things get a little difficult in church, people start to leave. And, and, uh, as, and even in those days, they, they didn't understand Jesus. They didn't understand what he was about. They, they thought they had figured him out even uh, in that miracle. And of course, then later, uh, as you continue to read the story there, even his followers were beginning to say, hey, I'm not sure if I'm interested in you anymore. And then of course, then he looks at his own disciples, the very few, the 12, and he says, are you also gonna leave? And Jesus, uh, and then Peter says, I can't leave because you have the words of eternal life. It's not, he didn't say, oh, Jesus, of course I want to follow you because you have all the benefits. And in fact, in there too, it said that they were trying to make him king and Jesus began to leave and then spoke the real truth of why he came was to give eternal life. Even as the election approaches, we're not electing a king. Jesus is our king. And we have to understand that even in John 18, he says later on, he says, even before the king, or at least the representative of the king, Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And that's what we're signing up for, church, is that we are signing up for an invisible kingdom where Jesus rules and reigns over his people called the church. That is the truth. That is our hope. That, and then also, if that's not only pretty amazing that Jesus is our king, but he'll be our king forever. He will set up his kingdom and he will rule and reign with the people who have done his work and are faithful here on earth will begin to rule and reign in his kingdom forevermore. What a great truth to anchor in in this season. But I wanna say that because I think there's so many mixed ideas of what healing is. What, uh, you know, there's so many different views of healing in the body. And I want to go to Acts 3 for a reason this morning, uh, not just because it's the, uh, is the next passage that we have. I think we're about, what, eight weeks into this thing around, right? Eight weeks? I don't know, something like that, give or take. But this is the next passage. But I also want to take a moment, even this morning, to, to bring some clarity to healing, as, as we'd say, maybe the culture of healing in the kingdom and bring some clarity because there's a lot of confusion swir- swirling around that, you know, people followed Jesus for the wrong reasons. They followed him because they thought that maybe they would 
uh, that he would break, free, break us all free, or at least Israel free from Roman, the Roman government, oppression, that maybe Jesus would break us free. Uh, as we're going to talk about in the, in the coming days, we're going we're gonna to actually have a whole message on uh, what is the role of government in the Christian life. And I think that is so important because, again, there lies a lot of confusion in the body. But for today, we are going to talk about healing because that is the text. It, it, Jesus, uh, through his disciples, through his delegated power, they began to see miraculous healings uh, to confirm that Jesus is who he says he is and was and always will be. So let's pick up in Acts 3. Verse one, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. So the disciples, what they did was they continued there three times a day praying. Uh, that was uh, at the, the different hours of the day. The ninth hour happened to be 3 p.m. is the most busiest. And they went to the temple and they continued to offer sacrifices, not in a way that would save them. Of course, they already knew the gospel. They already knew that no works can save them. And the sacrifices were eventually going to be obsolete in a, a few years. In about 70 AD, there was the destruction of Jerusalem. And as far as we know, it, Judaism died. It was done. And this new, quote unquote, new religion was birthed Christianity, although it always has its roots in the Old Testament. But they did uh, what they knew to do from Psalm 55, 16 and 17. They prayed three times a day, morning, noon, and evening. And in verse two, it says, a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate temple, which is called beautiful, in order to beg alms, or just uh, for, for money to uh, eat, or just, it's like begging for just the panhandlers today of those who are entering the temple. And so the beautiful gate basically was this massive gate. It actually took what says here 20, does it say 20, 21 people to close, to open and close. This thing was huge. And it was covered in uh, Corinthian uh, bronze or brass, uh, it was a heavy door, beautiful, very expensive. It was actually worth more than gold and silver, uh, which is ironic that he says silver and gold I do not have, but get up uh, in Jesus' name and walk. But this man had a genetic disease. In other words, it was, he was lame from birth. There was no question about this miracle that was about to happen. He, everybody knew this man. They would go every day. The temple steps were very high and they had to go up multiple different steps. So there were three different places that beggars would beg, so to speak. They would beg in the streets. They would beg uh, at the, near the houses of the rich. Even uh, if you look back at the gospels, there was many instances where uh, Jesus would see the beggar, and he, he would even point them, them out. They were, they were uh, always next to the very rich. Uh, and, but the most popular spot was the temple because people had to go in. They had to make their sacrifices. They already had money with them. And uh, they, you know, people were probably a little bit more in the mood, if you will, to give, uh, to do good works. And so that's the spot that we find this man there. And it says in verse three, when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. Now God said, Jesus, although Jesus said, the poor will always be among you. He says that. But at the same time, he was probably speaking of, I don't, he never said, I don't want the poor to be among you. Because what did he say in first John? It says, you, it, what, what would that be? Uh, you can't call yourself a Christian to see a brother's need and not do anything about it. So Jesus never said, oh, the poor will be among you as some flippant kind of, ah, oh, don't worry about it. I mean, they're always going to be there. They're kind of a, you know, a pest in a way. No, no, no. Jesus had compassion. In fact, it says in Deuteronomy 15, four through eight, that there's always, that is, that he always had provision. He would do it through the, through the people Israel, through his people to show compassion that there wouldn't be any poor among us. Now that's not a contradiction of the Bible. It's just saying that Jesus, uh, even in the New Testament letters, like I said, there's always a provision. There was always a command to make sure that we care for one another. But what we can conclude from this whole thing is this man was probably not a believer. Why do we know that? Because during that time, it's said in Acts 2, 42 to 47, we just read that there was no need among them. 
So if this man was a part of the believing community, there probably wouldn't, he wouldn't be in the place that he was in. And so Peter and John looked at that point and to an unbeliever. Verse four, it says, but Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. Now, how many of you know when you're out actually on the streets and you see a, uh, someone who is begging or someone who's paralyzed, you don't make eye contact with them, right? Because if you do, now you're obligated. And if they, take a, if they look at you and you look at them, you're like, okay, I think we're in about pre-transaction state right now, right? That's usually what happens. Many know that. We've all been there. But Peter and John said, look at us. They were ready to do something of the Lord. And they said, uh, it says in here in verse five, and he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. If he looked at him, he was expecting probably to receive something, some sort of money. In other words, if Peter and John had no, uh, no motivation to, to give anything, they would have just walked right past like everybody else walks right past. And I thought this, it, it is actually interesting, contrary to many people today who are the faith healers, Peter didn't have any money. Why do we know that? Why do you, know, why do you think that maybe Peter and John don't have any cash on them? Because they gave. They, they, he was regularly giving. It, what, he wasn't accumulating money. Now, the text doesn't say that, but at the same time, what, it does, what, what we know from just previous, they gave all the people gave the money that they had. Rich people gave the money that they had selling their properties, not by command. They didn't have to, as we talked about last week. It was voluntary, but those, that money was laid at the apostles' feet to be distributed, not to be kept. So Peter did not just keep and pad his pockets uh, right? But he gave. And so at this point, he's like, silver and gold, I don't have. He was legit. I mean, he's just literally saying, I don't have that. He wasn't saying, I have something better, but I don't have money to give you, but I do have something to give you. And of course, he says in verse six, but Peter says, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus, the Nazarene, walk. And so that happened. I thought I came across actually a really funny story. Uh, I grew up Catholic and uh, I, you know, I, I know about Rome. And if you've ever been to the Vatican, I've not been there. We were supposed to go there this fall uh, to Rome for some Antioch meetings. And I was looking forward to kind of going to the Vatican just to see the opulence, just the beautiful uh, structures and whatnot. There's lots of wealth there. But there's a story that I came across. I don't know if you know Thomas Aquinas. Some of you guys know his ch- uh, church father. He actually visited Pope Innocent II, and they were talking, and Pope Innocent II, uh, I don't know how they get these names, but, but uh, they, they, uh, he was counting all the money that was coming into Rome. And he said, he said to Thomas, he says, well, silver and gold we do have now. And, uh, and Thomas Aquinas says, yeah, true, silver and gold you do have, but you also, we as a church today, can't say get up and walk. In other words, he was pointing to the fact that they had lots of wealth, but they had very little spiritual power. And so I thought that was, I mean, it was meant to be funny in some sense, and, but I'm sure Thomas Aquinas at any, at any point tried to poke a little bit at the Pope anytime he, he could do that. But in verse seven, it says, in seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up and immediately his feet and, and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright, began to walk and he entered the temple with him walking and leaping, praising God. This was a real, authentic healing. He got up. He started, he, he couldn't even just walk. He had to leap. <laughs> Can you imagine this man who'd never, ever taken a step? The weight of his legs never supported him or weight of his body never supported him until now. And then all the people saw him walking and praising God and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, and they were filled with wonder, which is what a sign and a miracle should do, and their amazement at what had happened, verse 10. So this was authentic, this was real, but I have a few, uh, what I wanna take the remainder of this time to do, and, and I, wanna do, I wanna point out that in Isaiah 35, 6, the lame man will leap like a deer, 
and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. This was a fulfillment of Isaiah 35. Isn't that amazing? God's word is true. It's powerful. And it preached the whole counsel of God. You begin to really just, you be, your faith begins to get stirred and strengthened because faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. Romans 10. So five things I wanna show about this miracle that I want to set some things straight and to be clear on what healing is and what it's not and that what, what, what's our role in healing today. I think this will be helpful for everybody moving forward and be clear so that there's no question because there's so much confusion today in the body of Christ. At the very least, the, the, the uh, many churches, uh, there's so much presumption upon God. There's so much demand uh, and presumption upon God. Rather, God wants us to uh, move into this subject of healing with humility and saying, oh God, you have the power to do this. And I wanna, I wanna learn more and more what, it's, what, what it looks like to be a part of a church that believes for the miraculous, but at the same time does not presume upon God or demand that it needs to be done. Is that helpful? All right, so number one, he was healed by the grace and the sovereignty of God. That's number one. This was unexpected. Understand that there were many other beggars around that temple that probably never got healed. There was people that, that even in Jesus's time, how do we know that there was a time when the disciples were saying, all right, Jesus, there's so many people coming. I mean, you're doing so, many, so much amazing things. I mean, this is incredible. Why don't you stay and just continue this work? He's like, I have to go to other cities because I have, this is my job. This is what the father sent me to do, to seek and save the lost. I have, there's other people that God, my, my father has in mind. What does that mean? You can, you can basically say that there are people that he deliberately left behind. It's not that he loved them less. It's not that he cared for them less. It's, he just, he had to go to another city to reach and bring the gospel there. All right, so there are, I'm gonna give, one, two, three, four, four different examples. I do this because I put A, B, C. I need to like, yeah, I, someone help me on my outline. Okay, so Second Corinthians 12, nine. Paul was praying three different times. Three. Oh God, take away this thorn. And the word thorn means spear. It's not a little tiny little thorn from a rose bush that kind of pricks your leg. I mean, that's, everyone can bear that. But this is literally a, a spear lodged in his side. He's like, this is so painful. Jesus, please take it away. And when God said no, Paul didn't doubt his love. When, Paul, when, when God said no, my grace is sufficient, Paul knew that his grace was sufficient. He knew that it was it got, it got, in other words, Paul had the power. His shadow, his very shadow healed people. Why wasn't Paul just automatically healed? Now, some do say that Paul was not talking about a physical healing, but even his eyes were bad. Some say he wrote in big letters, Paul, you know, like at the end of it, he, he signed it, Paul. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I mean, probably not that big, but, but he, had, he had an eyesight problem and he say that. But he's talking about people that are annoying in his life. Have you ever had those people? The people that constantly persecute you or say things about you and revile you. But he's saying, hey, God, would you take these people away? It's painful, emotionally painful. How many know that sometimes emotional pain is much greater than physical? We'd say, oh, I'd rather deal with the physical any day than the emotional. So people cut themselves. So they rather deal with the physical. But Jesus said, no, I'm not gonna take it away. It's for your good. Now, this is a man who saw the third heaven. I mean, something had to keep him humble. <laughs> the greater the calling, the greater need for humility. And Paul understood that. Since uh, Timothy also in 1 Timothy 5.23, no longer drink water, this is Paul talking to Timothy, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Not talking about getting drunk, by the way, to kind of like maybe set the, you know, take the edge off. 
but a little wine, and they would, the wine back then was very diluted. And so it was a lot of times to take away all the, kind of to kill the bacteria, so to speak. It wasn't necessarily, uh, it wasn't potent. Uh, a lot of people dr- drank that. It was almost like, kind of like their water in, in some sense. It was very common. Epaphroditus, what a name. Phil, uh, Philippians 2, 25 to 27. But I thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your mess- excuse me, messenger and minister to my need. Paul loved this man. That's the point. But because he was longing for you all in distress because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. In other words, God kept him alive for Paul's sake and their sake. But otherwise, uh, what we can get from this is that he was sick. Paul just says, wham! And then just almost any inconvenience to Paul, it was like, hey, I'm just going to deal with this for my own benefit. In other words, the healing wasn't a tool to overcome any inconveniences to our lives or any pain or suffering in our lives. In fact, it says in Philippians, the same book, it said that we sign up for what? His resurrection power and his sufferings. That's what we sign up for. So wouldn't it be interesting that if we sign up for his resurrection power, which has the ability to to what? Heal. We also sign up for his uh, sufferings, which God at times does not allow healing. Does that make sense? So Timothy Epaphroditus, his friends, and Trophimus. The names get more interesting as we go along. 2 Timothy 4.20, Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. I left sick? How could Paul do that? Perhaps it wasn't the will, as hard as it is to hear it, perhaps it wasn't the will of God to heal him. There are times in our life that we will pray over and over and over again for someone, a brother or sister in the church, and sometimes God will heal instantly. And sometimes God heals over time. But so, and sometimes God doesn't heal at all. But let, let us make no question about it that New Testament healings were immediate. When there was a healing, it happened immediately and completely. So although we have the same vocabulary as the New Testament church, it functions a little differently today. And even so, even even in the New Testament, there are examples of people not getting healed. All right, James 5, 15 to 16. Is anyone among you sick? I think it starts at 13, I'm sorry. Is anyone among you sick? Then you must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. By the way, we've said this before. It's not, the, the power is not in the essential oil or the oil. Uh, although it might help, it certainly smells good uh, when you're praying for people. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, this is important, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that he may be healed. The effective prayer of the righteous man can accomplish much. How many guys, last time you've prayed for somebody that you're close to and you love, how many of you asked, hey, is there some sort of sin that maybe you need to confess? You're not, you're not demanding. You have sin in your life. You need to confess that. Then you'll be healed. That's not at all what this passage is saying that perhaps when you go to the elders, people who are leading you, not that they have more power than you, but they are your leaders. And it is also harder sometimes to confess sin to people that are over you. But nonetheless, you go to them and you say, look, I have this sin, this sin. I don't want it there anymore. And perhaps maybe the reason why I have this sin or this torment is because of it, or the reason why I have this illness is because perhaps maybe I have sin in my life and when I confess it, then he not only forgives us of our sin, but also then begins to bring healing in our life. I love that the scriptures are so clear on what to do. And that's happened in my life. People have come over and they've just 
prayed for me and, and I didn't get healed right away. But that over time, God did heal. And there are times where I have confessed and said, Lord, I don't want this. Any, I don't know if this is because of any sin, but I think there's also, uh, that there could be abuse to that too as well, uh, a potential for for people to just uh, beat themselves up over the, the sin that they have. And God's saying, this has nothing to do with your sin. This is so that what, and it says in the gospels, so that God might be glorified and glorified both in your sickness and glorified in the healing. And in fact, the disciples were saying, is this the, I think it's John 9, he says, is this the sin, right? Is this man born blind, is it because of his sin? Or is it because of his parents' sin? He says, neither. That this man's gonna be healed is for the glory of God. And I would imagine that Timothy and Epaphroditus and Trophus, there was a reason, and we can trust the sovereignty of God in that. There was a reason and we can rest on that, but there are other, that's why we got to know our word and we got to know where to find the scriptures and we can't just uh, have our little pet scriptures just because that's what we like. We have to have the whole, as Paul says in, in Acts 20, the whole counsel of God so that we understand how things work and understand how God works in different situations. All right, number two, the miracle was done in Jesus' name. That is important. That doesn't mean that we go and it's our secret code in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. In Je we don't, that's not to be used, but we know where the power comes from. It is in Jesus' name, not in human beings, not in their power, but it's by his character, his authority, and his power, not ours. That is, is we know that probably, but I have to say it. So Acts 2.22, Jesus of Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders, and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Through him is the key phrase. This, number three, this is according to God's will and his power. It, God, see, Jesus did give his delegated authority to his apostles to do the very work that he called them to do. And by the way, when he said, you are gonna do this in, in Matthew 10, it says, when you're gonna do this work, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits, demons, to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now that's important because he did not give us the same command. If he did give us the exact same command, then we should have the exact same results when we pray for somebody and boom, instantly they would be healed. So we can conclude the fact that that's not how God works now. Now I know that contrary to maybe some of us, how we believe it's okay because God still does miracles. We can still trust that he does miracles. This in no way hinders our prayers that we can ask God to heal our brothers and sisters or strangers or people on the streets when we share the gospel with them. So Matthew 10 is very clear that he gave these commandments to his apostles to attest. And I'll, I'll we'll show you uh, in the passages to come uh, a little bit more what I mean by that, but just make a mental note there. So number four, the miracle happened immediately and instantaneously. His ankles, this man's ankles were strengthened. Uh, his legs supported the weight of his body and he began to leap. Matthew eight thirteen, Jesus said to the centurion, go and it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment, the scriptures say. Mark 5, 29, immediately the flow of her blood was dried up. This is the woman who had a blood disease of 12 years and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Now know that the word healing in that context means salvation. That the whole point of Jesus healing that woman was to not just, he was, it's interesting because the Pharisees always were like around the corner. They were saying, this is blasphemy. This man forgives sins. And he says, which is harder, to forgive sin or to say, get up, pick up your mat and walk? In other words, what is hard? What proves what? What's the, the, the horse in the carriage? He's saying, look, I've come to seek and save the lost. Luke 19.10. What does that mean? That's Jesus's mission statement. That's what he came to do. Now, if I came to you with this message that said my grandmother 
has saving powers. She's an amazing grandma. She's an Italian grandmother, crazy woman. She can cook pasta like nobody's business and heal people and, and, and save people. You would think I'm crazy. But if you had a problem and you had like we're walking or couldn't walk or had cancer and I could just go, you better believe me, boom, in the name of Santa, this is my grandma's name, be healed. And they were healed. You'd be like, wow, this Santa might have something going for her. So understand when Jesus came to earth, he came to seek and save the lost. So when he actually said, get up and actually walk, that confirmed the former. Your sins are forgiven. Do you understand? His sins are forgiven because he's God and he proves that he's God by doing something visibly that they could see because forgiving of sins is invisible. But we need that in order to be in heaven in the visible eventually. So that's why he did that. Okay, so in Luke 5, 13, and he stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. Luke 17, 14, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And they were going. And as they were going, they were cleansed. John 5, 9, immediately the man became well, picked up his mat and began to walk. It's very evident that it was complete and immediate. Peter did not have to try to say, hey, can you try it? You know, just see if you're healed, you know, just kind of just test it. Oh, that didn't work. Went from a pain level 10 to pain level five. All right, let's just try it again. All right, maybe a three and didn't happen. Healing immediately. You know what? Some of us are thinking, man, that's kind of, that is amazing by the way, because Jesus came to earth. His disciples said, get up and walk, and it happened. We can trust his word. We can trust what he actually did while he was here. And he also gives us provision to learn how to do that with one another. So if one of, other finds, uh, 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 if we, if one of our brothers finds themselves sick or in pain, if we had the gift, let me just say it this way, if we had the gift of healing now, no one would have COVID in this church, and people do. But we go through the sufferings. We're not trying to sing, you know, if we be healed in Jesus, they should be, there should be no COVID, period. And we're not trying to say, oh, the, the faithful are protected. That hurts people, by the way, when we do that. Now, is there protection? Can we pray Psalm 91 and believe God for protection? Absolutely. Do I pray that every day? Yes. Do I know if something kind of got in there or I missed a prayer that morning or I forgot to pray and all of a sudden I got attacked? I mean, that's a good way of the enemy saying, hey, it's more relying on you than God. And that's the problem. It's a man-centered theology versus a God-centered theology. God-centered says he has the power to heal. He is sovereign and he does it at his will. Man-centered says it's all dependent on our faith and our works and our, our, our like uh, 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 perseverance and our, you know, the uh, potions, you know, like, I mean, uh, just incantations. It's like in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. And we try different things because the, the faith healers tell us different ways and different ways to manipulate God into doing what we want. And that hurts people rather than humbly just saying, all right, here's a brother who's in need. Let me ask you this. What is harder? Okay. The Bible says to not look at your brother who's in need and overlook him and leave and say, oh, have a good day. Like kind of bless him without physically meeting his needs. What is easier for me to just go, hey, in Jesus' name, and then boom, bada bing, and then just leave and I have, you know, I don't know about that guy, if he got healed or not. I don't, I don't know. It's not my problem. Or to actually say, this person's sick. I'm going to take about two or three hours, make him chicken soup, bring, him, bring it over to his house, love on him, care for him, sit there with him, follow up with him, and continue to pray until the fruition of his healing. Wow. I'm smacking that theology left and right right now in the spirit. It's not even funny because people are people right now. I'm telling you that stuff is dangerous because it, it, what it does is say, 
It's easy. Everything's easy with these guys. It's like, oh, just bomb, boom, bada, it's nothing. It's nothing. But to actually take time and to meet people's needs, that's costly, really costly. Because in it also, there's, there's a level of, hey, there's, uh, you know what kind of bond that's going to do in the church? You say, oh, that's not loving. Yeah, it's, it's actually more loving to actually do it that way. And perhaps, just perhaps, God designed it to be that way, to unify his church, to love each other like that, to actually have a place in our hearts where we show empathy, we show real, true, brotherly love. So good, his word is awesome. But let me uh, get to the more harder stuff here before we conclude. I just have a few more things to say about this. Number one, uh, a few more things to consider if you're taking notes, just number one, false teachers who say they represent God but actually do great harm to the church. Matthew seven fifteen. Beware, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Inwardly are ravenous wolves. This is actually happening today. Matthew twenty four eleven. Ma- many false prophets will rise and will mislead many. Matthew twenty four twenty four. They will show great signs and wonders as to mislead, if possible, the elect, the brothers, sisters, Christians. Acts twenty twenty nine. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Titus 1.10, I wish I could expound on every one of these, I can't. Titus 1.10, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers. 2 Corinthians 11.13-15, such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So many. No wonder even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. How clear can he be? All right, it says in 1 Timothy 4.1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. And let me say this very clearly. In churches that you may have visited, teach doctrines of demons. And you don't have to go to a Satanist church. If I were the devil and I wanted to deceive many people, I'd work more in the church than the world. If I could deceive the church, the world's mine. You see, that is the enemy's tactics. Let's not be fooled. It says in 2 Peter 2, 1 to 21, this is a longer one, but I, I have to read it. But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will, be secretly, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, this is speaking of the false teachers, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. I'm afraid that many people in here are hearing this for the first time or even being preached, and that's sad. Because this is so important to preach. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world but preserve Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of, of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by, for by what he saw and heard that righteous men while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. He will rescue us. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas in angels who are greater in might and power, do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these 
like unreasoning, unreasoning animals <laughs> born as a creature of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes reveling, reveling in their deception as they carouse with you. They're among us. There are the wheat and the tares. And I think it is the most loving thing to do, honestly, to say that, even though we're not to be cynical as a church, not to look to our right and left and say, well, we're inviting this couple over. We're just going to see if they're a false teacher. You know, it's not, that's not what we're doing here, guys. We're just saying that maybe perhaps the church has been imbalanced for so many years and never talk about it. And then, of course, of course, there's people that talk about it way too much. So we need to be balanced in it, but nonetheless, we need to talk about it. We need to preach the whole counsel of God. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. These are false teachers. Having a heart trained in greed. How many of you know are like this? Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke from his own transgression for a mute donkey. <laughs> Speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water, mist driven by a storm. In other words, springs without water. Joe, uh, Jude says the same thing. They're a cloud without water. They're promises, but they never deliver. That's what false preachers do. They promise a lot of stuff for you and they never deliver, do they? For whom... The black darkness has been reserved for speaking out of arrogant words of vanity. They entice by fleshy desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in air, promising them freedom while they make themselves are, are slaves of corruption for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handing on to them. It'd be better off if they were of the world deceiving people, an actual magician deceiving people than be under the name of Christ being a pastor in the church. Jude 4 through 16, it says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who are, who are long before him marked out for this condemnation, godly persons who turn the grace of our, Lord, of our God into licentiousness and deny only the master, Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you though, you, do, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. This is talking about before creation as the devil and Lucifer and his angels left. He had kept, has kept in, in eternal bonds under the darkness for judgment on the day, on the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example and the undergoing and the punishment of eternal fire. Jude was Jesus's half-brother who wasn't saved during the time of Jesus, but then got saved after the resurrection. This is, the this is what he writes. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revel angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce anything against him, a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. That is very important. We don't just flippantly talk to demons. In fact, there was a, a, something I heard the other day that a pastor began to speak uh, in front of thousands of people in a conference. And the first thing he, that came out of his mouth is he was talking to Satan. Jesus said, this is how you pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We talked to God and he even said, the Lord, Lord, you rebuke Satan. And I'm telling you, Michael was pretty real deal angel, but he understood that we're on the same playing field. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna go up. I'm gonna go up a level to the Lord. 
But these men revel the things which do not understand and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals. By these things, they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain and for, for, and for pay, they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam. For pay, isn't that interesting? And perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. And in other words, they hide. They're hidden reefs. They hide the fish who hide in the reefs. In your church, they're here. Perhaps they're here right now. And I don't know who they are. I'm not trying to, I don't speak to one person when I preach. It's to all. But I'm just saying, don't be surprised. It's the word. That's what it says. And he says that for our benefit. They are clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, Doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars, for, the, for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. He's talking about hell. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy angels to execute judgment upon all and to convict all ungodly for their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. And all, of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Wow. Number two, we need discernment and need to recognize these people. We test the spirit. First John 4, 1 through 8, we need to test, 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 test. And please, like Acts 17, 11, please test me. I'm inviting that now for the record. You can question me, period. For the record, you cannot say that you cannot question because you can. In fact, Paul welcomed it too. In Acts 11, he said, hey, like the Bereans, he was just preaching. He was like, oh, they were just checking the scriptures to see, hey, is Paul a false teacher? And when they found out that what Paul was saying matched the Old Testament scriptures, because that's the only Bible that they had, he said, you know what? It's true. And therefore, a church was born. And I would say the same for you. Please test, but do it with a, with a humble heart. In fact, it says in Timothy, it says, when you approach elders, make sure you have two or three witnesses before you accuse. And if there's gross immorality, not doctrinal differences, rebuke them but you need to be careful and do it with a humble, in a humble way. 1 John 4, 1 through 8 speaks about this test. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And by the way, the Antichrist is not just one man who's going to come. He's probably not going to be a U.S. president. I mean, don't, he's the Antichrist. It's a spirit of the Antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians 2, you can read it. It is important to know the spirit of the Antichrist. And I believe it is here. The spirit of it just meaning against God, against the things of God against Jesus or counterfeits of which you have heard that is for, uh, it, that it is coming and now it is already in the world. So John said it himself, right? So I just said something and then we just tested it with the word. See how that works? You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in the world or in you than is in the world. This, con- this is always taken out of context, right? But this is comfort and knowing that even though it is chaotic and crazy, the Holy Spirit in which God put in you is able to test so that you're not deceived. So we should never get to heaven saying, oh, we were just so deceived. But he wants his people, the church, to be sharp and confident in what the word of God says. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world. The world listens to them. Isn't that true? People of the world, the worldly things, they just keep talking to each other. And they listen, but we shouldn't take that. Everything that we hear from the media, everything that we hear that's going on in the world, you don't have to take that. And that's not wrong to say that. I've even had people offended by that and saying, oh, that's so offensive. Oh, 
That's fine. I've told you I'll offend many people. But as long as we're offending with the truth, as long as we're offending with the truth, we are from God and he knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. Wow, (laughs) that's like so clear. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We should know on a daily basis what's of God, what's not of God, what's of God, what's not of God, what's of God, what's not of God. It's very clear. But if we surround ourselves with ungodly philosophies, guess what? We won't know. But if we're in the word, we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. John 17 says his word is true and he's sanctifying his believers in the truth. He prayed that to the father said, no, it's gonna happen here on earth. Number three, God affirmed Jesus and the word through miracles. These accredit the teaching of Jesus and his disciples. John 10, 25, I told you, you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name. These testify of me. John 10, 37, 38, if I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. John 14, 11, believe me that I am in the father and the father is in me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. John 3, 2, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. There are, the thing about miracles is that you can be healed and we can go to a show and after that show, live a life that is not of God and be in hell. The point of miracles is not to impress, but to point to Jesus. That is the point of miracles and it stands today the same. And so it says, God affirmed his apostles in 2 Corinthians 12, 12 signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. In fact, it says in Ephesians 2, 20, says that the foundations of the apostles and prophets were laid for our benefit. For the benefit of the church, they came to set up camp, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we have the same power as the apostles and prophets. Now that the canon is closed, 1 Peter 1, 19 to 21, we have the sure word, he says, the sure prophetic word, which is what? The word of God. It says in Hebrews 2, 3 to 4, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at, the fir- at, after it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. That is why Jesus did the miracles. If the point was to heal everybody on earth, there should be no sickness today. And the reality is there is. But here's the hope that when we get to heaven, this is in Revelation 22, there will be no sickness. That's the hope that we have. And that is the the real true gospel message that we're supposed to speak. Number five, healings can be false and counterfeit. Psychosomatic illnesses happen all the time where people conjure up different uh, things in in those, uh, contrary to maybe what many people think, Jesus did not have a show. There was no show. There wasn't a mass crusade of healing. Uh, he did do uh, big events, but most of the time it was just organic. He was walking around, he saw somebody, he, and he would just, in fact, he was walking to, an, to get to another healing, to a healing that someone prompted him. And on the way to it, he performed another one out of compassion, out of compassion, because he loved his people, out of grace, out of his sovereign will. But it wasn't a show. You don't need to bring people to a show. And a lot of times, a lot of times, you find the psychosomatic illnesses uh, and, and, and temporary healings. In other words, when you're in those moments because of the way the music's is and the, the just everything has to line up just just right and just a little bit more uh, the, and it, it, it gets everybody emotional and you just get into it and thinking that maybe you're not sick and all of a sudden you become sick and all of a sudden you get healed but it wasn't really a healing and 
You understand what I'm saying? It just, it, it, it happens. It really does. Testimony after testimony after testimony, you could read that these things do happen. However, there are times that the, the Lord does heal people. And there's times where I'll say here, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, it says, the one who is coming, speaking to the Antichrist, is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. In other words, it could be false healing. It could be literally something that the enemy does to just fool people. Or it could be a genuine healing of the Lord and we don't know. But we know by discernment. And even with discernment, it's limited to our own humanness. And we just say, you know what? I'll leave it in God's hands. Here's what I wouldn't do. I wouldn't say if someone did get healed at an event or something like that, don't, don't say, well, uh, was it real? I don't know. Where do you stand today? Are you following Jesus? Were you encouraged by it? Do you have a theology now because of it? Right? I think those are the things I would look out for. Many will say to me, Matthew 7, 22 to 23, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? In your name, in your name, cast out demons and perform miracles. These are all found at the events. These are all the, really, the, the, the big, heavy three that many talk about, including then tongues. But, and they, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, there can be false prophecies, healings, casting out of demons for the purpose of bringing you away from Jesus. That's crazy, but it's biblical. And in fact, it says in Mark 13, 22, same thing, false Christ, false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders, lead people astray if possible, even believers. All right, number six, the last one here. God, uh, and I could, yep, we can have the worship team come up. This is, we're going to end a little early, I think, <laughs> at least on normal, yeah, on time, yeah, which is early in a lot of ways. God does heal by his grace, not on demand through the prayers of his people, according to the sovereign will of God. Let me repeat that. God does heal by his grace, not on our demand, but through prayers of his people, by God's sovereignty and will. So every time someone gets sick in the house, your first thing is not to figure out if it's God's will. Your first thing is not to see if they have enough faith. Your first thing is not to demand that people get healed on the spot. Your job is to go meet that need in a a brother who's suffering. Your first thing is to go to their house, to love them, to care for them, to make the meals. To, and we have done so much of that in this church. I am forever thankful of, of April 2018 when Nicole was sick for about six months. And it was a chaotic time. We're on our way to, uh, to many different places. And we uh, went to Sweden and Portugal that year and that summer. And she was sick for the whole time. And it was hard. In fact, we were a part of the team that went to every city across from Gothenburg to, to uh, Stockholm and about, what, about 350 miles going all over the place. And she was sick and it was hard, but people brought meals and while we were at home. And I mean, I think we had, what, 40 days worth, I think, of meals and prayers. And she wasn't healed on the spot. But I'm telling you, you wanted, I, I am, I'm thankful, even though I would have loved to have a healing on the spot, I realize how loving our church really is. God used that in so many different ways. Don't deprive somebody of their growth. Sometimes, you know, God is more interested in your sanctification and he will a lot of times not heal you on the spot because he wants to do something deeper, not only in you, but the church. That's what he wants to do. But don't mistake. The fact is God does heal, but we are to look at James 5. And many other passages, reread Ephesians 5, reread Colossians 3, and how we're to act towards one another when we're filled with the Spirit, filled with the Word. One last point here before I illustrate something and then we'll stop. But Acts uh, only records, by the way, uh, healings to unbelievers. There's only one uh, uh, in Acts 9.36, um, Ananias, I think I'm pronouncing it right, 
Ananias, not Ananias, the one who helped Paul, but Ananias and Acts 9, 33, 36. It seems like uh, the, that this person was just called not a brother, a disciple, but in that context, he was just called a man, a regular man who they got, who Peter healed him and it brought many to Jesus, which was the point again of the New Testament miracles, was to show there's a new order. The dawn of a new order. Jesus is coming and he has power over sin and death and disease. But know that the ultimate miracle is salvation. And every miracle in the New Testament always produced salvation. That was the point. That was the point. Healing means salvation. Word is sozo. And so literally in your Bible, you'll see a little, little note that if you have a reference Bible, in my Bible, the NASB that I use, and I think ESV uses this too, but the little note, it says, it says that their sins are forgiven is the same as being healed, salvation of your physical, spiritual, and emotional life. That's what Jesus has come to do. You can have hope today with the truth that he wants to heal you physically, spiritually, and emotionally. But it may not be on your terms. But I'll tell you what, before you leave this earth, make sure that you got healed spiritually. Make sure that you have the gospel. Make sure that's why he says, gouge out your eye. Because it's better to go with one eye into heaven than have both your eyes in hell. What is he saying? Your spiritual life matters more than anything. There was a man named Nabil Qureshi, and you know him. He was uh, a former Muslim, became a Christian. He wrote a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. It's a powerful book. Um, amazing. You should read it. Uh, we are going to Detroit with about 150 people. I would read that book before you leave uh, to that trip. Very powerful. But the problem is, is he had died at age 34. Very premature. Very sad story. He left a wife and a child behind. Very tough. He died of stomach cancer. In fact, he, uh, people that knew him, Ravi Zacharias, people that knew him, as the story was told, he could eat more than anyone. He had like a bottomless plate. He just kept eating. One afternoon when he was going uh, to a buffet, he just said, hey, I've, I, my, something's not right with my stomach. And I just know something's, I'm having weird sensations. He got to go, he checked it out at the doctor. They found out he had stage four cancer. There's no way besides a miracle that this man would make it out of that. A man of God, God saved this man. And, and he started a ministry that ministered to so many countless Muslims. But you see, many people gave him a hard time. Many people said he didn't have enough faith and only if he had enough faith and only if he had the right people to come in and pray for him, he might be healed. You see how destructive that theology is? This man was under the will of God. God used him powerfully. No question. It was part of his great plan. It wasn't Satan took him out. It was part of his plan. I don't understand that. I'll never understand that. I think we should still pray. In fact, there's videos that show when he's on his deathbed, he said, let's believe, let's believe, let's believe that I'll be healed. I'm still believing all the way unto death. And if God so chooses not to heal me on this side of heaven, he will on the other side. And he went, he went with the Lord with that kind of faith. He did have faith just look different than all the voices around him, right? You know, when you have an issue down the road, whether it's you have one right now, whether you know a loved one who's dying or whenever you get into that situation, let me tell you, you're going to want a theology that looks more like Nabil Qureshi than you would Benny Hinn, than you would any of the faith healers of today. Now, of course, you might take a plane ticket and fly to Redding, California to see if Bill Johnson can lay hands on you. But at the end of the day, there are people here that love you and care about you. And there's no one that has more of a power 
in healing or an edge on anyone here because we are to love people all the way to the grave. We are to care for people. This is really the title of this message, the culture of healing, theology of healing, the correct theology of healing. Because all of us will find ourselves in this place one day, suffering. It's part of being a Christian. But there's no easy quick fix, right? There's no, I'm selling you a bill of goods. I'm selling you something that clouds without water. But I want to give you the truth that it will set you free, that we have hope. And the hope is God can heal today. And the hope is God can heal tomorrow. And the hope is God will heal in eternity. That is the truth. And that sets us free to live life and to love one another and to meet each other's needs. So Father, thank you for the truth. Thank you, Lord, that it never changes and that we have it and it is, you are setting us apart as you prayed before you died. And you even said, take this cup from me. Take it if you can. And the Father, of course, we know he didn't. He allowed his son to suffer on the cross so that he can purchase, yes, our healing today, which is temporary, but ultimately to purchase our healing physically, spiritually, and emotionally for all of eternity. And I thank you, God, that that is the truth. And the truth will set us free. God, give us that kind of faith and that kind of confidence in your word that there is no depriving of the good stuff as contrary to many people are saying. This is the good stuff. You are the good stuff. Relationship with you is the good stuff. The fact that you can heal today is the good stuff. The fact that you will continually heal us, both physically, spiritually, and emotionally. You will complete the work you've done in us, Philippians 1.6, and complete it to the end. That is the good stuff. That's the great stuff. And that's what we've all signed up for. So God, give us a humility, give us unity in the body. And may we be a strong church in these end times. In these times, in these troubling, crazy times, let us have truth, truth that will set people free around us, our neighbors. Let us have compassion for those who are suffering in this church. There is no greater love than somebody laying their lives down for someone who is in pain, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Let us sign up for empathy, pastoral care. I pray, God, right now that you would even stir people's hearts right now for pastoral care, like kind of like a deacon in a way, if you will, to meet the needs of this church on a daily basis. May you lift up people right now and, and stir people's hearts right now, right now, even as I'm speaking, that people would say, oh, I know of people who are hurting. And I just wanted to flippantly give the, qu- the quick answer, but rather not to suffer with, but I want to suffer with now. I want to be one who meets those needs. When I hear of somebody suffering, even with COVID, God forbid we go over to their house and drop a pot of chicken soup. We've got to be the church in these times. As they get harder and harder in the times to come, we want to know that each other has each other's back. Everybody in this church, I want to know personally, even for myself, that I know people have our back. That is a church. More than just the pat answers and quick demanding results that we want. But God, give us a Jesus-centered theology in church, not a man-centered. That we might be used by you, as Paul said in Timothy, be used as noble purposes, pure, righteous, holy purposes that you might have in the days to come. In Jesus' name. All right, church, I just want to invite